Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tonight, I will be continuing the story, Anne of Green Gables. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 11 Anne's Impressions of Sunday School Well, how do you like them? said Marilla. Anne was standing in the gable room looking solemnly at three new dresses spread out on the bed. One was of snuffy, coloured gingham, which Marilla had been tempted to buy from a peddler the preceding summer, because it looked so serviceable. One was of black and white checkered sateen, which she had picked up at a bargain counter in the winter. And one was a stiff print of an ugly blue shade, which she had purchased that week at a Carmody store. She had made them up herself, and they were all made alike. Plain skirts fold tightly to plain waists, with sleeves as plain as waist and skirt and tight as sleeves could be. I'll imagine that I like them, said Anne soberly. I don't want you to imagine it, said Marilla, offended. Oh, I can see you don't like the dresses. What is the matter with them? Aren't they neat and clean and new? Yes. Then why don't you like them? They're, they're not pretty, said Anne reluctantly. Pretty, Marilla sniffed. I didn't trouble my head about getting pretty dresses for you. I don't believe in pampering vanity, Anne. I'll tell you that right off. 
Those dresses are good, sensible, serviceable dresses without any frills or furbelows about them. And they're all you'll get this summer. The brown gingham and the blue print will do you for school when you begin to go. The setting is for church and Sunday school. I'll expect you to keep them neat and clean and not to tear them. I should think you'd be grateful to get most anything after those skimpy, wincy things you've been wearing. Oh, I am grateful, protested Anne. But I'd be ever so much gratefuler if, if you made them just one of them with puffed sleeves. Puffed sleeves are so fashionable now. It would give me such a thrill, Marilla, just to wear a dress with puffed sleeves. Well, you have to do without your thrill. I hadn't any material to waste on puffed sleeves. I think they're ridiculous-looking things anyhow. I prefer the plain, sensible ones. But I'd rather look ridiculous when everybody else does than plain and sensible all by myself, persisted Anne mournfully. Trust you for that. Well, hang those dresses carefully up in your closet and then sit down and learn the Sunday school lesson. I got a quarterly from Mr. Bell for you and you'll go to Sunday school tomorrow, said Marilla, disappearing downstairs in high dudgeon. Anne clasped her hands and looked at the dresses. I did hope there would be a white one with puffed sleeves, she whispered disconsolately. I prayed for one, but I didn't much expect it on that account. I didn't suppose God would have time to bother about a little orphan's girl's dress. I knew I'd just have to depend on Marilla for it. Well, fortunately, I can imagine that one of them is of snow-white muslin with lovely lace frills and three puffed sleeves. The next morning, warnings of a sick headache prevented Marilla from going to Sunday school with Anne. You'll have to go down and call for Mrs. Lynde, Anne, she said. She'll see that you get into the right class. Now mind you behave yourself properly. Stay to preaching afterwards and ask Mrs. Lynde to show you our pew. Here's a scent for collection. Don't stare at people and don't fidget. I will expect you to tell me the text when you come home. Anne started off irreproachable, arrayed in the stiff black and white sateen, which, while decent as regards length and certainly not open to the charge of skimpiness, contrived to emphasize every corner and angle of her thin figure. Her hat was a little flat, glossy new sailor, the extreme plainness of which had likewise much disappointed Anne, who had permitted herself secret visions of ribbon and flowers. The latter, however, were supplied before Anne reached the main road for being confronted halfway down the lane with a golden frenzy of wind-stirred buttercups and a glory of wild roses, Anne promptly and liberally garlanded her hat with a heavy wreath of them. Whatever other people might have thought of the result, it satisfied Anne, and she tripped gaily down the road, holding her ruddy head with its decoration of pink and yellow very proudly. When she'd reached Mrs. Lynde's house, she found that lady gone. Nothing daunted, Anne proceeded onward to the church alone. In the porch, she found a crowd of little girls, all more or less gaily attired in whites and blues and pinks, and all staring with curious eyes at this stranger in their midst, with her extraordinary head adornment. Avonlea little girls had already heard strange stories about Anne. Mrs. Lynde said she had an awful temper. Jerry Boot, the hired boy at Green Gables, said she talked all the time to herself or to the trees and flowers like a crazy girl. They looked at her and whispered to each other behind their quarterlies. Nobody made any friendly advances. Then, or later on, when the opening exercises were over, and Anne found herself in Miss Rogerson's class. Miss Rogerson was a middle-aged lady who had taught a Sunday school class for 20 years. Her method of teaching was to ask the printed questions from the quarterly and looked sternly over its edge at the particular little girl she thought ought to answer the question. She looked very often at Anne, and Anne, thanks to Marilla's drilling, answered promptly, but it may be questioned if she understood very much about either question or answer. She did not think she liked Miss Rogerson, and she felt very miserable. Every other little girl in the class had puffed sleeves. Anne felt that life was really not worth living without puffed sleeves. Well, how did you like Sunday school, Marilla wanted to know when Anne came home. Her wreath having faded, Anne had discarded it in the lane, so Marilla was spared the knowledge of it 
for a time. I didn't like it a bit. It was horrid. Anne Shirley, said Marilla, rebukingly. Anne sat down on the rocker with a long sigh, kissed one of Bonnie's leaves, and weaved her hand to a blossoming fuchsia. They might have been lonesome while I was away, she explained. And now about the Sunday school. I behaved well, just as you told me. Mrs. Lynde was gone, but I went right on myself. I went into the church with a lot of other little girls, and I sat in the corner of a pew by the window while the opening exercises went on. Mr. Bell made an awfully long prayer. I would have been dreadfully tired before he got through if I hadn't been sitting by that window. But it looked right out on the lake of shining waters, so I just gazed at that and imagined all sorts of splendid things. You shouldn't have done anything of the sort. You should have listened to Mr. Bell. But he wasn't talking to me, protested Anne. He was talking to God, and he didn't seem to be very much interested in it either. I think he thought God was too far off, though. There was a long row of white birches hanging over the lake, and the sunshine fell down through them, way, way down, deep into the water. Oh, Marilla, it was like a beautiful dream. It gave me a thrill, and I just said, thank you for it, God, two or three times. Not out loud, I hope, said Marilla anxiously. No, just under my breath. Well, Mr. Bell did get through at last, and they told me to go into the classroom with Miss Rogerson's class. There were nine other girls in it. They all had puffed sleeves. I tried to imagine mine were puffed too, but I couldn't. Why couldn't I? It was as easy as could be to imagine they were puffed when I was alone in the East Gable. But it was awfully hard there among the others who had truly puffed sleeves. You shouldn't have been thinking about your sleeves in Sunday school. You should have been attending to the lesson. I hope you knew it. Oh, yes. And I answered a lot of questions. Miss Rogerson asked ever so many. I don't think it was fair for her to do all the asking. There were lots I wanted to ask her, but I didn't like to because I didn't think she was a kindred spirit. Then all the other little girls recited a paraphrase. She asked me if I knew any. I told her I didn't, but I could recite The Dog at His Master's Grave if she liked. That's in the third royal reader. It isn't a really, truly religious piece of poetry, but it's so sad and melancholy that it might as well be. She said it wouldn't do, and she told me to learn the 19th paraphrase for next Sunday. I read it over in church afterwards, and it's splendid. There are two lines in particular that just thrill me. Quick as the slaughtered squadrons fell in Midian's evil day. I don't know what squadrons means, nor Midian either, but it sounds so tragical. I can hardly wait until next Sunday to recite it. I'll practice it all the week. After Sunday school, I asked Miss Rogerson, because Mrs. Lynde was too far away, to show me your pew. I sat just as still as I could, and the text was Revelations, third chapter, second and third verses. It was a very long text. If I was a minister, I'd pick the short, snappy ones. The sermon was awfully long, too. I suppose the minister had to match it to the text. I didn't think he was a bit interesting. The trouble with him seems to be that he hasn't enough imagination. I didn't listen to him very much. I just let my thoughts run and thought of the most surprising things. Marilla felt helplessly that all this should be sternly reproved, but she was hampered by the undeniable fact that some of the things Anne had said, especially about the minister's sermons and Mr. Bell's prayers, were what she herself had really thought deep down in her heart for years, but had never given expression to. It almost seemed to her that those secret, unuttered, critical thoughts had suddenly taken visible and accusing shape and form in the person of this outspoken morsel of neglected humanity. Chapter 12 A Solemn Vow and Promise It was not until the next Friday that Marilla heard the story of the flower-wreathed hat. She came home from Mrs. Lynde's and called Anne to account. Anne, Mrs. Rachel says you went to school last Sunday with your hat rigged out ridiculous with roses and buttercups. What on earth put you up to such a caper? A pretty-looking object you must have been. Oh, I know pink and yellow aren't becoming to me, began Anne. Becoming fiddlesticks. 
It was putting flowers on your hat at all, no matter what colour they were, that was ridiculous. You're the most aggravating child. I don't see why it's any more ridiculous to wear flowers on your hat than on your dress, protested Anne. Lots of little girls there had bouquets pinned on their dresses. What's the difference? Marilla was not to be drawn from the safe concrete into dubious paths of the abstract. Don't answer me back like that, Anne. It was very silly of you to do such a thing. Never let me catch you at such a trick again. Mrs. Rachel says she thought she would sink through the floor when she saw you come in, all rigged out like that. She couldn't get near enough to tell you to take them off till it was too late. She says people talked about it something dreadful. Of course, they would think I had no better sense than to let you go decked out like that. Oh, I'm so sorry, said Anne, tears welling into her eyes. I never thought you'd mind. The roses and buttercups were so sweet and pretty, I thought they'd look lovely on my hat. Lots of the little girls had artificial flowers on their hats. I'm afraid I'm going to be a dreadful trial to you. Maybe you'd better send me back to the asylum. That would be terrible. I don't think I could endure it. Most likely, I would go into consumption. I'm so thin as it is, you see. But that would be better than being a trial to you. Nonsense, said Marilla, vexed at herself for having made the child cry. I don't want to send you back to the asylum, I'm sure. All I want is that you should behave like other little girls and not make yourself ridiculous. Don't cry anymore. I've got some news for you. Diana Barry came home this afternoon. I'm going up to see if I can borrow a skirt pattern from Mrs. Barry. And if you'd like, you can come with me and get acquainted with Diana. Anne rose to her feet with clasped hands, the tears still glistening on her cheeks. The dish towel she had been hemming slipped unheeded to the floor. Oh, Marilla, I'm frightened. Now that it has come, I'm actually frightened. What if she shouldn't like me? It would be the most tragical disappointment of my life. Now don't get into a fluster. I do wish you wouldn't use such long words. It sounds so funny in a little girl. I guess Diana like you well enough. It's her mother you've got to reckon with. If she doesn't like you, it won't matter how much Diana does. If she has heard about your outburst to Mrs. Lynde and going to church with buttercups around your hat, I don't know what she'll think of you. You must be polite and well-behaved and don't make any of your startling speeches. For pity's sake, if the child isn't actually trembling. Anne was trembling. Her face was pale and tense. Oh, Marilla, you'd be excited too if you were going to meet a little girl you hoped to be your bosom friend and whose mother mightn't like you, she said, as she hastened to get her hat. They went over to Orchard Slope by the shortcut across the brook and up the Furry Hill Grove. Mrs. Barry came to the kitchen door in answer to Marilla's knock. She was a tall, black-eyed, black-haired woman with a very resolute mouth. She had the reputation of being very strict with her children. How do you do, Marilla? she said cordially. Come in. And this is the little girl you've adopted, I suppose? Yes, this is Anne Shirley, said Marilla. Spelled with an E, gasped Anne, who, tremulous and excited as she was, was determined there should be no misunderstanding on that important point. Mrs. Barry, not hearing or not comprehending, merely shook hands and said kindly, How are you? I'm well in body, although considerable rumpled up in spirit. Thank you, ma'am, said Anne gravely. Then aside to Marilla in an audible whisper. There wasn't anything startling in that, was there, Marilla? Diana was sitting on the sofa, reading a book which she dropped when the callers entered. She was a very pretty little girl, with her mother's black eyes and hair and rosy cheeks, and the merry expression which was her inheritance from her father. This is my little girl, Diana, said Mrs. Barry. Diana, you might take Anne out into the garden and show her your flowers. It would be better for you than straining your eyes over that book. She reads entirely too much. This to Marilla, as the little girls went out. And I can't prevent her, for her father aids and abets her. She's always poring over a book. I'm glad she has a prospect of a playmate. Perhaps it will take her out doors more often. Outside in the garden, which was full of mellow sunset, light streaming through the dark, old firs to the west of it, stood Anne and Diana, gazing bashfully at each other over a clump of gorgeous tiger lilies. The Barry Garden was a bowery wilderness of flowers, 
which would have delighted Anne's heart at any time less fraught with destiny. It was encircled by huge old willows and tall firs beneath which flourished flowers that loved the shade. Prim, right-angled paths, neatly bordered with clamshells, intersected it like moist red ribbons, and in the beds between, old-fashioned flowers ran riot. There were rosy bleeding hearts and great splendid crimson peonies, white, fragrant narcissi, and thorny, sweet scotch roses, pink and blue and white columbines, and lilac-tinted bouncing bets, clubs of southernwood and ribbon grass and mint, purple Adam and Eve, daffodils, and masses of sweet clover, white with its delicate, fragrant, feathery sprays, scarlet lightning that shot its fiery lances over prim white musk flowers. A garden it was, where sunshine lingered, and bees hummed, and winds beguiled into loitering, purred, and rustled. Oh, Diana, said Anne at last, clasping her hands and speaking almost in a whisper. Oh, do you think you can like me a little, enough to be my bosom friend? Diana laughed. Diana always laughed before she spoke. Well, I guess so, she said frankly. I'm awfully glad you've come to live at Green Gables. It'll be jolly to have somebody to play with. There isn't any other girl who lives near enough to play with, and I've no sisters big enough. Will you swear to be my friend forever and ever? demanded Anne eagerly. Diana looked shocked. Why, it's dreadfully wicked to swear, she said rebukingly. Oh no, not my kind of swearing. There are two kinds, you know. I never heard of but one kind, said Diana doubtfully. There really is another. Oh, it isn't wicked at all. It just means vowing and promising solemnly. Well, I don't mind doing that, agreed Diana, relieved. How do you do it? We must join hands so, said Anne gravely. It ought to be over running water. We'll just imagine this path is running water. I'll repeat the oath first. I solemnly swear to be faithful to my bosom friend, Diana Barry, as long as the sun and moon shall endure. Now you say it and put my name in. Diana repeated the oath with a laugh fore and aft. Then she said, You're a strange girl, Anne. I heard before that you were strange, but I believe I'm going to like you real well. When Marilla and Anne went home, Diana went with them as far as the log bridge. The two little girls walked with their arms about each other. At the brook, they parted with many promises to spend the next afternoon together. Well, did you find Diana a kindred spirit? asked Marilla as they went up through the garden of Green Gables. Oh, yes, sighed Anne blissfully unconscious of any sarcasm on Marilla's part. Oh, Marilla, I'm the happiest girl in Prince Edward Island this very moment. I assure you, I'll always say my prayers with the right goodwill tonight. Diana and I are going to build a playhouse in Mr. William Bell's birch grove tomorrow. Can I have those broken pieces of china that were thrown out in the woodshed? Diana's birthday is in February and mine is in March. Don't you think that is a very strange coincidence? Diana is going to lend me a book to read. She says it's perfectly splendid and tremendously exciting. She's going to show me a place back in the woods where rice lilies grow. Don't you think Diana has very soulful eyes? I wish I had soulful eyes. Diana is going to teach me to sing a song called Nellie in the Hazel Dell. She's going to give me a picture to put up in my room. It's a perfectly beautiful picture, she says. A lovely lady in a blue silk dress. A sewing machine agent gave it to her. I wish I had something to give Diana. I'm an inch taller than Diana, but she's ever so much fatter. She says she'd like to be thin because it's so much more graceful, but I'm afraid she only said it to soothe my feelings. We're going to the shore someday to gather shells. We've agreed to call the spring down by the log bridge the Dryad's Bubble. Isn't that a perfectly elegant name? I read a story once about a spring called that. A dryad is a sort of grown-up fairy, I think. Well, all I hope is you don't talk Diana to death, said Marilla. But remember, this is in all your planning, Anne. You're not going to play all the time, or most of it. You'll have your work to do, and it'll have to be done first. Anne's cup of happiness was full, and Matthew caused it to overflow. He had just got home from a trip to the store at Carmody, and he sheepishly produced a small parcel from his pocket and handed it to Anne with a deprecatory look at Marilla. I heard you say you liked chocolate sweeties, so I got you some, he said. Hmph, sniffed Marilla. It'll ruin her teeth and stomach. 
There, there, child, don't look so dismal. You can eat those, since Matthew has gone and got them. He'd better have brought you peppermints. They're wholesomer. Don't sicken yourself eating them all at once now. Oh, no, indeed I won't, said Anne eagerly. I'll just eat one tonight, Marilla, and I can give Diana half of them, can't I? The other half will taste twice as sweet to me if I give some to her. It's delightful to think I have something to give to her. I will say for the child, said Marilla when Anne had gone to her gable. She isn't stingy. I'm glad, for of all faults I detest stinginess in a child. Dear me, it's only three weeks since she came and it seems as if she'd been here always. I can't imagine the place without her. Now, don't be looking I told you so, Matthew. That's bad enough in a woman, but it isn't to be endured in a man. I'm perfectly willing to own up that I'm glad I consented to keep the child and that I'm getting fond of her. But don't you rub it in, Matthew Cuthbert. Chapter 13 The Delights of Anticipation It's time Anne was in to do her sewing, said Marilla, glancing at the clock, and then out into the yellow August afternoon, where everything drowsed in the heat. She stayed playing with Diana more than half an hour, more than I gave her leave to, and now she's perched out there on the woodpile, talking to Matthew, nineteen to the dozen, when she knows perfectly well she ought to be at her work. And of course, he's listening to her like a perfect ninny. I never saw such an infatuated man. The more she talks, and the odder the things she says, the more he's delighted, evidently. Anne Shirley, you come right in here this minute. Do you hear me? A series of staccato taps on the west window brought Anne flying in from the yard, eyes shining, cheeks faintly flushed with pink, unbraided hair streaming behind her in a torrent of brightness. Oh, Marilla, she exclaimed breathlessly, there's going to be a Sunday school picnic next week in Mr. Harmon Andrews Field, right near the Lake of Shining Waters, and Mrs. Superintendent Bell and Mrs. Rachel Lind are going to make ice cream. Think of it, Marilla, ice cream. And oh, Marilla, can I go to it? Just look at the clock, if you please, Anne. What time did I tell you to come in? Two o'clock. But isn't it splendid about the picnic, Marilla? Please, can I go? I've never been to a picnic. I've dreamed of picnics, but I've never. Yes, I told you to come in at two o'clock, and it's a quarter to three. I'd like to know why you didn't obey me, Anne. Oh, I meant to, Marilla, as much as could be. But you have no idea how fascinating Idlewild is. And then, of course, I had to tell Matthew about the picnic. Matthew is such a sympathetic listener. Please, can I go? You'll have to learn to resist the fascination of idle whatever you call it. When I tell you to come in at a certain time, I mean that time, and not half an hour later. And you needn't stop to discourse with sympathetic listeners on your way, either. As for the picnic, of course you can go. You're a Sunday school scholar, and it's not likely I'd refuse to let you go when all the other little girls are going. But, faltered Anne, Diana says that everybody must take a basket of things to eat. I can't cook, as you know, Marilla, and and I don't mind going to a picnic without puffed sleeves so much, but I'd really feel terribly humiliated if I had to go without a basket. It's been preying on my mind ever since Diana told me. Well, I needn't pray any longer. I'll bake you a basket. Oh, my dear good Marilla, oh, you're so kind to me. I'm so much obliged to you. Getting through with her o's, Anne cast herself into Marilla's arms and rapturously kissed her sallow cheek. It was the first time in her whole life that childish lips had voluntarily touched Marilla's face. Again, that sudden sensation of startling sweetness thrilled her. She was secretly vastly pleased at Anne's impulsive caress, which was probably the reason why she said brusquely, There, there, never mind your kissing nonsense. I'd sooner see you doing strictly as you are told. As for cooking, I mean to begin giving you a lesson in that, some of these days, but you're so feather-brained, Anne. I've been waiting to see if you'd sober down a little and learn to be steady before I begin. You've got to keep your wits about you in cooking, and not stop in the middle of things to let your thoughts rove all over creation. Now get out your patchwork and have your square done before tea time. I do not like patchwork, said Anne dolefully hunting about her work basket and sitting down before a little heap of red and white diamonds with a sigh. I think some kinds of sewing would be nice, but there's no scope for imagination in patchwork. 
It's just one little seam after another, and you never seem to be getting anywhere. But of course, I'd rather be Anne of Green Gables sewing patchwork than Anne of any other place with nothing to do but play. I wish time went as quick sewing patches as it does when I'm playing with Diana, though. Oh, we do have such elegant times, Marilla. I have to furnish most of the imagination, but I'm well able to do that. Diana is simply perfect in every other way. You know that little piece of land across the brook that runs up between our farm and Mr. Barry's? It belongs to Mr. William Bell, and right in the corner there's a little ring of white birch trees, the most romantic spot, Marilla. Diana and I have our playhouse there. We call it Idlewild. Isn't that a poetical name? I assure you it took me some time to think it out. I stayed awake nearly a whole night before I invented it. Then, just as I was dropping off to sleep, it came like an inspiration. Diana was enraptured when she heard it. We have got our house fixed up elegantly. You must come and see it, Marilla, won't you? We have great big stones, all covered with moss for seats, and boards from tree to tree for shelves. And we have all our dishes on them. Of course, they're all broken, but it's the easiest thing in the world to imagine that they're whole. There's a piece of a plate with a spray of red and yellow ivy on it that is especially beautiful. We keep it in the parlour, and we have the fairy glass there too. The fairy glass is as lovely as a dream. Diana found it out in the woods behind their chicken house. It's all full of rainbows, just like young rainbows that haven't gone big yet. And Diana's mother told her it was broken off a hanging lamp that they once had. But it's nice to imagine the fairies lost it one night when they had a ball, so we call it the fairy glass. Matthew is going to make us a table. Oh, we've named that little round pool over in Mr. Barry's field, Willowmere. I got that name out of a book Diana lent me. That was a thrilling book, Marilla. The heroine had five lovers. I'd be satisfied with one, wouldn't you? She was very handsome, and she went through great tribulations. She could faint as easy as anything. I'd love to be able to faint, wouldn't you, Marilla? It's so romantic. I believe I'm getting fatter, though. Don't you think I am? I look at my elbows every morning when I get up to see if any dimples are coming. Diana is having a new dress made with elbow sleeves. She's going to wear it to the picnic. Oh, I do hope it'll be fine next Wednesday. I don't feel that I could endure the disappointment if anything happened to prevent me from going to the picnic. I suppose I'd live through it, but I'm certain it would be a lifelong sorrow. It wouldn't matter if I got to a hundred picnics. After years, they wouldn't make up for missing this one. They're going to have boats in the Lake of Shining Waters, and ice cream, as I told you. I've never tasted ice cream. Diana tried to explain what it was like, but I guess ice cream is one of those things that are beyond imagination. Anne? You've talked on for ten minutes by the clock, said Marilla. Now just for curiosity's sake, see if you can hold your tongue for the same length of time. Anne held her tongue as desired, but for the rest of the week she talked picnic and thought picnic and dreamt picnic. On Saturday it rained, and she worked herself up into such a frantic state, lest it would keep on raining, until and over Wednesday, that Marilla made her sew an extra patchwork square by way of steadying her nerves. On Sunday, Anne confided to Marilla on the way home from church that she grew actually cold all over with excitement when the minister announced the picnic from the pulpit. Such a thrill as went up and down my back, Marilla. I don't think I'd ever really believed until then that there was honestly going to be a picnic. I couldn't help fearing I'd only imagined it. But when a minister says something in the pulpit, you just have to believe it. You set your heart too much on things, Anne, said Marilla with a sigh. I'm afraid there'll be a great many disappointments in store for you through life. Oh, Marilla, looking forward to things is half the pleasure of them, exclaimed Anne. You mayn't get the things themselves, but nothing can prevent you from having the fun of looking forward to them. Mrs. Lynde says, Blessed are they who expect nothing, for they shall not be disappointed. But I think it would be worse to expect nothing than to be disappointed. Marilla wore her amethyst brooch to church that day as usual. Marilla always wore her amethyst brooch to church. She would have thought it rather sacrilegious to leave it off, as bad as forgetting her Bible or her collection dime. That amethyst brooch was Marilla's most treasured possession. A seafaring uncle had given it to her mother, who in turn had bequeathed it to Marilla. It was an old-fashioned oval, containing a braid of her mother's hair, surrounded by a border of very fine amethysts. Marilla knew 
too little about precious stones to realize how fine the amethysts actually were. But she thought them very beautiful and was always pleasantly conscious of their violet shimmer at her throat, above her good brown satin dress, even although she could not see it. Anne had been smitten with delighted admiration when she first saw that brooch. Oh, Marilla, it's a perfectly elegant brooch. I don't know how you can pay attention to the sermon or the prayers when you have it on. I couldn't, I know. I think amethysts are just sweet. They're what I used to think diamonds were like. Long ago, before I'd ever seen a diamond, I read about them, and I tried to imagine what they'd be like. I thought they'd be lovely, gleaming purple stones. When I saw a real diamond in a lady's ring one day, I was so disappointed I cried. Of course, it was very lovely, but it wasn't my idea of a diamond. Will you let me hold the brooch for one minute, Marilla? Do you think amethysts can be the souls of good violets? Chapter 14 Anne's Confession On the Monday evening before the picnic, Marilla came down from her room with a troubled face. Anne, she said to that small personage, who was shelling peas by the spotless table and singing Nelly of the Hazel Dell, with a vigor and expression that did credit to Diana's teaching. Did you see anything of my amethyst brooch? I thought I stuck it in my pincushion when I came home from church yesterday evening, but I can't find it anywhere. I, I saw it this afternoon when you were away at the Aid Society, said Anne a little slowly. I was passing your door when I saw it on the cushion, so I went in to look at it. Did you touch it? said Marilla sternly. Yes, admitted Anne. I took it up and I pinned it on my breast just to see how it would look. You had no business to do anything of the sort. It's very wrong in a little girl to meddle. You shouldn't have gone into my room in the first place and you shouldn't have touched a brooch that didn't belong to you in the second. Where did you put it? Oh, I put it back on the bureau. I hadn't it on a minute. Truly, I didn't mean to meddle, Marilla. I didn't think about its being wrong to go in and try on the brooch. But I see now that it was, and I'll never do it again. That's one good thing about me. I never do the same naughty thing twice. You didn't put it back, said Marilla. That brooch isn't anywhere on the bureau. You've taken it out or something, Anne. I did put it back, said Anne quickly. Pertly, Marilla thought. I don't just remember whether I stuck it on the pincushion or laid it in the china tray, but I'm perfectly certain I put it back. I'll go and have another look, said Marilla, determined to be just. If you put that brooch back, it's there still. If it isn't, I'll know you didn't. That's all. Marilla went to her room and made a thorough search, not only over the bureau, but in every other place she thought the brooch might possibly be. It was not to be found, and she returned to the kitchen. Anne, the brooch is gone. By your own admission, you were the last to handle it. Now what have you done with it? Tell me the truth at once. Did you take it out and lose it? No, I didn't, said Anne, solemnly, meeting Marilla's angry gaze squarely. I never took the brooch out of your room, and that is the truth, if I was to be led to the block for it, although I'm not very certain what a block is. So there, Marilla. Anne, so there, was only intended to emphasize her assertion, but Marilla took it as a display of defiance. I believe you are telling me a falsehood, Anne, she said sharply. I know you are. There now. Don't say anything more unless you're prepared to tell the whole truth. Go to your room and stay there until you're ready to confess. Will I take the peas with me? said Anne meekly. No, I'll finish shelling them myself. Do as I bid you. When Anne had gone, Marilla went about her evening task in a very disturbed state of mind. She was worried about her valuable brooch. What if Anne had lost it? And how wicked of the child to deny having taken it when anybody could see she must have with such an innocent face, too. I don't know what I wouldn't sooner have had happen, thought Marilla, as she nervously shelled the peas. Of course, I don't suppose she meant to steal it or anything like that. She's just taken it to play with or help along that imagination of hers. She must have taken it, that's clear, for there hasn't been a soul in that room since she was in it, by her own story, until I went up tonight. And the brooch is gone, there's nothing sure. I suppose she has lost it and is afraid to own up for fear she'll be punished. It's a dreadful thing to think she tells falsehoods. It's a far worse thing than her fit of temper. It's a fearful responsibility to have a child in your house you can't trust. 
slyness and untruthfulness. That's what she has displayed. I declare I feel worse about that than about the brooch. If she'd only have told me the truth about it, I wouldn't mind so much. Marilla went to her room at intervals all through the evening and searched for the brooch without finding it. A bedtime visit to the East Gable produced no result. Anne persisted in denying that she knew anything about the brooch, but Marilla was only the more firmly convinced that she had. She told Matthew the story the next morning. Matthew was confounded and puzzled. He could not so quickly lose faith in Anne, but he had to admit that circumstances were against her. You're sure it hasn't fallen down behind the bureau? was the only suggestion he could offer. I've moved to the bureau, and I've taken out the drawers, and I've looked in every crack and cranny, was Marilla's positive answer. The brooch is gone, and that child has taken it and lied about it. That's the plain, ugly truth of Matthew Cuthbert, and we might as well look it in the face. Well now, what are you going to do about it? Matthew asked forlornly, feeling secretly thankful that Marilla, and not he, had to deal with the situation. He felt no desire to put his oar in this time. She'll stay in her room until she confesses, said Marilla grimly, remembering the success of this method in the former case. Then we'll see. Perhaps we'll be able to find the brooch if she'll only tell where she took it. But in any case, she'll have to be severely punished, Matthew. Well now, you'll have to punish her, said Matthew, reaching for his hat. I've nothing to do with it, remember? You've warned me off yourself. Marilla felt deserted by everyone. She could not even go to Mrs. Lynn for advice. She went up to the east gable with a very serious face and left it with a face more serious still. Anne steadfastly refused to confess. She persisted in asserting that she had not taken the brooch. The child had evidently been crying and Marilla felt a pang of pity which she sternly repressed. By night she was, as she expressed it, beat out. You'll stay in this room until you confess, Anne. You can make up your mind to that she said firmly. But the picnic is tomorrow, Marilla, cried Anne. You won't keep me from going to that, will you? You'll just let me out for the afternoon, won't you? Then I'll stay here as long as you like afterwards, cheerfully. But I must go to the picnic. You'll not go to picnics nor anywhere else until you've confessed, Anne. Oh, Marilla, gasped Anne. But Marilla had gone out and shut the door. Wednesday morning dawned as bright and fair as if expressly made to order for the picnic. Birds sang around green gables. The Madonna lilies in the garden sent out whiffs of perfume that entered in on viewless winds at every door and window and wandered through halls and rooms like spirits of benediction. The birches in the hollow waved joyful hands as if watching for Anne's usual morning greeting from the east gable. But Anne was not at her window. When Marilla took her breakfast up to her, she found the child sitting primly on her bed, pale and resolute, with tight-shut lips and gleaming eyes. Marilla, I'm ready to confess. Ah, Marilla laid down her tray. Once again, her method had succeeded, but her success was very bitter to her. Let me hear what you have to say then, Anne. I took the amethyst brooch, said Anne, as if repeating a lesson she had learned. I took it just as you said. I didn't mean to take it when I went in. But it did look so beautiful, Marilla, when I pinned it on my breast, that I was overcome by an irresistible temptation. I imagined how perfectly thrilling it would be to take it to Idlewild and play I was the Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald. It would be so much easier to imagine I was the Lady Cordelia if I had a real amethyst brooch on. Diana and I make necklaces of roseberries, but what are roseberries compared to amethysts? So I took the brooch. I thought I could put it back before you came home. I went all the way round by the road to lengthen out the time. When I was going over the bridge across the Lake of Shining Waters, I took the brooch off to have another look at it. Oh, how it did shine in the sunlight. And then, when I was leaning over the bridge, it just slipped through my fingers. So, and went down, 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 all purply sparkling, and sank forevermore beneath the Lake of Shining Waters. And that's the best I can do at confessing, Marilla. Marilla felt hot anger surge up into her heart again. This child had taken and lost her treasured amethyst brooch and now sat there, calmly reciting the details thereof, without the least apparent compunction or repentance. And this is terrible, she said, trying to speak calmly. You're the very wickedest girl I ever heard of. 
Yes, I suppose I am, agreed Anne tranquilly. And I know I'll have to be punished. It'll be your duty to punish me, Marilla. Won't you please get it over right off, because I'd like to go to the picnic with nothing on my mind. Picnic indeed. You go to no picnic today, Anne Shirley. That will be your punishment. And it isn't severe enough for what you've done. Not go to the picnic? Anne sprang to her feet and clutched Marilla's hand. But you promised me I might. Oh, Marilla, I must go to the picnic. That was why I confessed. Punish me any way you like but that. Oh, Marilla, please, please let me go to the picnic. Think of the ice cream. For anything you know, I may never have a chance to taste ice cream again. Marilla disengaged Anne's clinging hands stonily. You needn't plead, Anne. You're not going to the picnic and that's final. No, not a word. Anne realized that Marilla was not to be moved. She clasped her hands together, gave a piercing shriek, and then flung herself face downward on the bed, crying and writhing in an utter abandonment of disappointment and despair. For the land's sake, gasped Marilla, hastening from the room. I believe the child is crazy. No child in her senses would behave as she does. If she isn't, she's utterly bad. Oh dear, I'm afraid Rachel was right from the first. But I've put my hand to the plow, and I won't look back. That was a dismal morning. Marilla worked fiercely and scrubbed the porch floor and the dairy shelves when she could find nothing else to do. Neither the shelves nor the porch needed it, but Marilla did. Then she went out and reached the yard. When dinner was ready, she went to the stairs and called Anne. A tear-stained face appeared, looking tragically over the banisters. Come down to your dinner, Anne. I don't want any dinner, Marilla, said Anne sobbingly. I couldn't eat anything. My heart is broken. You'll feel remorse of conscience someday, I expect, for breaking it, Marilla, but I forgive you. Remember when the time comes that I forgive you. But please, don't ask me to eat anything, especially boiled pork and greens. Boiled pork and greens are so unromantic when one is in affliction. Exasperated, Marilla returned to the kitchen and poured out her tale of woe to Matthew, who between his sense of justice and his unlawful sympathy with Anne was a miserable man. Well now, She shouldn't have taken the brooch, Marilla, or told stories about it, he admitted, mournfully surveying his plateful of unromantic pork and greens, as if he, like Anne, thought it a food unsuited to crises of feeling. But she's such a little thing, such an interesting little thing. Don't you think it's pretty rough not to let her go to the picnic when she's so set on it? Matthew Cuthbert, I'm amazed at you. I think I've let her off entirely too easy. And she doesn't appear to realize how wicked she's been at all. That's what worries me most. If she'd really felt sorry, it wouldn't be so bad. And you don't seem to realize it neither. You're making excuses for her all the time, to yourself. I can see that. Well now, she's such a little thing, feebly reiterated Matthew. And there should be allowances made, Marilla. You know she's never had any bringing up. Well, she's having it now, retorted Marilla. The retort silenced Matthew, if it did not convince him. That dinner was a very dismal meal. The only cheerful thing about it was Jerry, the hired boy, and Marilla resented his cheerfulness as a personal insult. When her dishes were washed and her bread sponge set and her hens fed, Marilla remembered that she had noticed a small rent in her best black lace shawl when she'd taken it off on Monday afternoon on returning from the ladies' aid. She would go and mend it. The shawl was in a box in her trunk. As Marilla lifted it out, the sunlight, falling through the vines that clustered thickly about the window, struck upon something caught in the shawl, something that glittered and sparkled in facets of violet light. Marilla snatched at it with a gasp. It was the amethyst brooch hanging to a thread of the lace by its catch. Dear life and heart, said Marilla blankly, what does this mean? Here's my brooch, safe and sound, that I thought was at the bottom of Barry's pond. Whatever did that girl mean by saying she took it and lost it? I declare I believe Green Gables is bewitched. I remember now that when I took off my shawl Monday afternoon, I laid it on the bureau for a while. I suppose the brooch got caught in it somehow. Well. Marilla betook herself to the East Gable brooch in hand. Anne had cried herself out and was sitting dejectedly by the window. Anne's surely, said Marilla solemnly. I've just found my brooch hanging to my black lace shawl. Now, I want to know what that rigmarole you told me this morning meant. 
Why, you said you'd keep me here until I confessed, returned Anne wearily. And so I decided to confess because I was bound to get to the picnic. I thought out a confession last night after I went to bed and made it as interesting as I could. And I said it over and over so that I wouldn't forget it. But you wouldn't let me go to the picnic after all, so all my trouble was wasted. Marilla had to laugh in spite of herself, but her conscience pricked her. Anne, you do be tall. But I was wrong. I see that now. I shouldn't have doubted your word when I'd never known you to tell a story. Of course, it wasn't right for you to confess to a thing you hadn't done. It was very wrong to do so, but I drove you to it. So if you'll forgive me, Anne, I'll forgive you, and we'll set square again. And now, get yourself ready for the picnic. Anne flew up like a rocket. Oh, Marilla, isn't it too late? No, it's only two o'clock. They won't be more than well gathered yet, and it'll be an hour before they have tea. Wash your face and comb your hair and put on your gingham. I'll fill a basket for you. There's plenty of stuff baked in the house. And I'll get Jerry to hitch up the sorrel and drive you down to the picnic ground. Oh, Marilla, exclaimed Anne, flying to the washstand. Five minutes ago I was so miserable I was wishing I'd never been born. And now I wouldn't change places with an angel. That night, a thoroughly happy, completely tired out Anne returned to Green Gables in a state of beatification impossible to describe. Oh, Marilla, I've had a perfectly scrumptious time. Scrumptious is a new word I learned today. I heard Mary Alice Bell use it. Isn't it very expressive? Everything was lovely. We had a splendid tea, and then Mr. Harmon Andrews took us all for a row on the Lake of Shining Waters, six of us at a time, and Jane Andrews nearly fell overboard. She was leaning out to pick water lilies, and if Mr. Andrews hadn't caught her by her sash just in the nick of time, she'd have fallen in and probably been drowned. I wish it had been me. It would have been such a romantic experience to have nearly drowned. It would be such a thrilling tale to tell. And we had ice cream. Words fail me to describe that ice cream, Marilla. I assure you it was sublime. That evening, Marilla told the whole story to Matthew over her stocking basket. I'm willing to own up that I made a mistake, she concluded candidly, but I've learned a lesson. I have to laugh when I think of Anne's confession, although I suppose I shouldn't, for it really was a falsehood. But it doesn't seem as bad as the other would have been somehow, and anyhow, I'm responsible for it. That child is hard to understand in some respects, but I believe she'll turn out all right yet. And there's one thing certain. No house will ever be dull that she's in. Good night.